0: Realistically, you're never going to get your 20-year-old body back any more than you're going to return to a wrinkle-free face. In episode 100, I went through all of the reasons why, on average, women put on 5 to 7 pounds during perimenopause and are twice as likely as midlife men to have obesity. So now that you understand why you woke up one day and your scale registered your mother's weight, there are strategies to prevent the weight gain in the first place, keep it from continuing to climb, and take it off. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. When it comes to menopause, midlife, and what comes after, I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. If women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information. There are plenty of midlife women who are just fine with that extra 10, 20, or 30 pounds, and in fact, are kind of offended at the suggestion that they even need to lose the weight. Today, the mantra is, all bodies are beautiful, which has resulted in a culture that not only accepts having obesity as being normal, but sometimes attacks healthcare professionals who suggest that losing weight would be beneficial. But advising a patient on the benefits of maintaining a healthy weight is not the same as fat shaming. Fat shaming, meaning making someone feel embarrassed or ashamed about their weight by publicly criticizing or drawing attention is never okay. And when I tell a patient that they would benefit by losing weight, I'm not making any judgments on if large men and women are just as attractive, just as sexy, and just as good as people who do not have obesity. I'm just sticking to the medicine and sticking to the facts. So here's the facts. I'm going to give you the list of medical conditions that are directly tied to being overweight and having obesity. It's a long list, but I'm not going to speed it up like they do at the end of drug commercials when they don't really want you to hear all the possible side effects of a medication. This is something you do need to hear. So being overweight and having obesity is associated with a lifetime risk of high cholesterol, kidney disease, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, Joint disease requiring joint replacement, gout, depression, sleep apnea, asthma, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, GERD, urinary incontinence, sexual dysfunction, and according to the CDC, at least 13 kinds of cancer, including esophageal cancer, brain cancer, multiple myeloma, Kidney cancer, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, thyroid cancer, breast cancer, and postmenopausal women, liver cancer, gallbladder cancer, stomach cancer, pancreatic cancer, colon cancer, and rectal cancer. So from a medical point of view, the benefits of maintaining a healthy weight are not controversial. And when someone says they're healthy despite carrying around an extra 50 or 60 pounds, my response is, You're healthy at this moment in time, but you're setting yourself up for disaster down the road. Some women are only five to 10 pounds over their premenopause weight and are not medically at risk, but are highly motivated to take it off either because they feel better, prefer the way they look at a lower weight, or are concerned that they're going to continue to gain. And as I mentioned in the last episode, that was me. I gained around 10 pounds during perimenopause, which was not catastrophic, but I really wanted to take it off both because of vanity, but also because of my family history. And I was worried that if my weight continued to go up, I was a ticking time bomb for heart disease. So it's just as valid to want to lose a small amount of weight as it is to want to lose significant weight, acknowledging that the stakes are a lot higher for someone who's on the verge of diabetes. Obviously, it's better to prevent the weight gain than to have to take it off later. And good news is it's not inevitable that women will gain weight with menopause. The Women's Healthy Lifestyle Project was a study to see if lifestyle interventions could prevent menopause-related weight gain. In this study, premenopausal women were divided into two groups. Group one had regular sessions regarding diet and exercise education, Not only did they not gain weight when they went into perimenopause, but they actually lost weight. Group two that had no intervention gained the typical five to seven perimenopause pounds. So my tips, I'm not going to tell you to just exercise more and eat less. You've already been told that about a hundred times. My approach is to eliminate as many of the specific factors and behaviors that are sabotaging your ability to lose weight, even if you're pretty good about sticking to a healthy diet. This is what worked for me. First, I'm gonna cover specific interventions that have been proven to prevent perimenopausal women from gaining weight and help postmenopausal women lose weight. Interventions that have nothing to do with diet or exercise. And then I'm gonna give you some realistic, doable strategies to break the disconnect between what you should do and what you do do to help you eat less and move more. And in many cases, it's harder to change the pattern behavior that goes with eating than it is to change your diet. I was originally going to cover specific diets, you know, the Mediterranean diet, Galveston, high protein, the DASH diet, intermittent fasting. But when I was putting this episode together, it was way too much to cover. So that's going to be a separate episode. I'm also not going to cover weight loss drugs and bariatric surgery because that's another big topic, which I'm saving for another time. So here goes, my tips and strategies to prevent perimenopause weight gain and lose postmenopause weight. In part one, I mentioned the reason that men don't gain weight the way women do is because men don't have hot flashes and insomnia. So tip number one, you need to get rid of the hot flashes. The elevation in cortisol that occurs with every flash is sabotaging any weight loss effort. Waiting it out is not a realistic strategy, given that hot flashes last an average of seven to 10 years, and some women flash forever. Whether you choose to go with a hormonal or a non-hormonal fix, lose the flashes, or it will be pretty much impossible to lose the weight. My hot flash How book is the most comprehensive when it comes to ways to get rid of hot flashes, but I've got lots of episodes on that as well, which I'll put in the program notes. Tip number two. You need to get a decent night's sleep. Seven hours of uninterrupted sleep appears to be the magic number to ensure that the hunger-controlling hormones, leptin and ghrelin, are at optimal appetite control levels. Hot flashes are the number one cause of inadequate sleep during menopause, but are not the only thing that sabotages sleep. Restless leg syndrome, stress, a snoring bedmate, chronic pain, sleep apnea, the list is long. And I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to get a decent night's sleep when you're trying to lose weight. Inadequate sleep not only slows your metabolism, as I talked about in the last episode, but also leads to poor food choices. When women would come to the menopause center saying their only issue was weight gain, the first questions we would ask were, are you sleeping? Are you having hot flashes? Inevitably, the women who were struggling the most were the women who were sleeping the least. A sleep specialist, and most large hospitals have one, is the first step if you've already fixed the flashes and still not sleeping. A lot of women are turning to cannabis, and yes, I do have an episode coming up about cannabis and some sleep. Tip number three, hormone therapy. Estrogen will not only get rid of the flashes and help you get a decent night's sleep, but will also help reduce that muffin top. Not get rid of it, just make it a little less noticeable. It's been scientifically proven that women who take hormone therapy gain less weight than women who don't take hormone therapy. The Postmenopausal Estrogen Progesterone Intervention Study, known as the PEPI trial, was a large well-designed trial to specifically look at heart disease risk factors in healthy menopause women. In PEPI, women taking oral estrogen gained less weight and had a smaller waist circumference than women on no estrogen. Ditto the Kronos Estrogen Intervention Study, known as the KEEPS trial. In KEEPS, women on transdermal estrogen that was started within three years of the menopause transition gained less weight and had a smaller waist circumference than women on no estrogen. And it is well established that there's a reduction in risk of type 2 diabetes and insulin sensitivity in women who take estrogen. There are multiple studies that show that estrogen changes metabolism and hunger cues in the brain. Loss of estrogen after menopause increases total adiposity and decreases lean body mass. And estrogen therapy, either oral or transdermal, helps prevent this. So for all the women that worry that taking estrogen will make them gain weight, it's the exact opposite. Tip number four, beware drugs that pack on pounds. So many medications promote weight gain, including medications that are frequently prescribed to perimenopausal women. Many of the non-hormonal medications to prevent hot flashes, gabapentin, clonidine, and many antidepressants, including paroxetine and other SSRIs, are all on the list. So if you're taking one of those medications, talk with the prescriber to see if there's an alternative option, such as fesalinitin, that's not associated with weight gain. Tip number five stress management. I can't do anything about mass shootings, the death of democracy, and the fact that a majority of the women in this country no longer have control over their own uterus. But seriously, stress management is really important. And while it would be nice to get out of that toxic work situation or make chronic financial problems disappear, it can really make a huge difference taking up meditation or seeing a therapist. Getting rid of your hot flashes and insomnia will definitely cut down on your body's stress and maybe turn off the news. Moving on. For me, as someone who's always stuck to a pretty healthy diet, I wasn't eating bad stuff. I was eating too much stuff. And it was the behavioral tips and strategies that impacted how much I was eating that made a huge difference. And it's not just about food. Alcohol for some is an even bigger problem. And I'm not talking today about the the many health issues that surround alcohol and even putting aside the fact that alcohol can make hot flashes worse. I'm just specifically talking about the impact of alcohol on weight. Perimenopause and postmenopause women tend to drink more than women in their 30s or 40s. Part of it is the kids are out of the house and there's more dining out and socializing or the kids are still in the house and you need to escape from the stress of that. And then there are those who drink to help them fall asleep. Whatever the reason, women are drinking more, including binge drinking, and those drinks are going to add a lot of calories. So if you don't drink at all, skip the next three tips. But if you do drink, tip number six is drink like they do in Hollywood. I mean, ever wonder how celebrities keep from gaining weight? Having your own trainer and personal chef doesn't hurt. But sticking to tequila and other clear alcohol is a strategy that also helps the choice of alcohol has a huge impact on your calorie intake. Cocktails, beer, and other sugar-filled drinks like margaritas are the worst. Wine was my weak point until I realized that two glasses with dinner at 120 calories a glass added up to 25 pounds a year. And while we're on the subject of wine, tip number seven, beware the bottomless wine glass. If you go out to eat a lot, It may seem more economical to order a bottle of wine instead of by the glass, but an attentive, motivated waiter will make sure your wine glass is never empty. It might cost you a little more to order by the glass, but you'll drink less and know how much you're drinking if you don't let your waiter do the pouring. Tip number eight. The first drink always goes down the fastest. So before you gulp down that tequila, start with a sparkling water. I put it in a wine glass and drop a lemon slice into it so it seems more festive. It will cut down on your alcohol consumption for the evening by at least one glass, if not two. So moving on to food. Restaurants in general are challenging, and buffets are the worst. So tip number nine, scope out the end of the buffet first. I worked my way through college and medical school as a waitress in a seafood restaurant. For my Chicago listeners, remember Jonathan Livingston Seafood? Jonathan Livingston Seafood pretty much paid for medical school. They were well-known for their amazing seafood buffet. On that buffet, the starchy, fatty, filling, really tempting, inexpensive stuff like tuna salad swimming in creamy mayo, pasta salad, and potato gratin loaded with cheese were at the beginning of the buffet. The restaurant was banking on the fact that people would load up on that stuff and not have any room on their plate or in their stomachs for the more expensive shrimp, oysters, and crab legs at the end of the buffet. So before you load up your plate, scope out the whole buffet. And if you're ordering, tip number 10, skip the starters. I mean, restaurants in general are my biggest challenge. When I eat at home, I don't start with appetizers. Yet when we go out to dinner with another two or three people, the first thing that happens is after you've downed that first cocktail, the wait person offers starters and my table of four orders two or three starters to share. And before I know it, fried calamari, mini crab cakes, and the bread basket have landed on the table. So just say, you know, I'm going to order my own starter and then get the shrimp cocktail, roasted cauliflower, or a green salad. Tip number 11, think about sharing your entree. I mean, portions in most restaurants are huge. And by the time you've had your starter, and a salad, you don't really need a whole plate full of food. My husband and I always share an entree and sometimes we even end up taking some home. you will save a lot of money with this strategy and one dessert for the table is plenty. I mean, you're not hungry at this point. You just want some chocolate. I get it. So have a few bites of the chocolate lava cake. Although personally, I find it easier to not have any cake than to just take one bite. But anyway, think about splitting stuff. And if you split all this stuff, Tip your weight person as if you each had your own entree. As an ex-waitress, I just needed to put in that plug. Tip number 12. Restaurants aside, fast food and ultra-processed foods just shouldn't be part of your regular diet. And I went through all that in the last episode. And if you rely on frozen food to feed the family and throw something together for yourself and you're not organized enough or willing to prep your own meals and throw them in the freezer, there are a lot of frozen options that are not ultra processed. You just need to be mindful of the ingredients. Under the heading of it's not what we eat, it's how much we eat, the next group of tips are ways to cut down on portion size. Starting with tip number 13, if you inherited your grandma's china, You may have noticed that plates used to be a lot smaller, and they were. Dinner plate sizes have increased on average by 23% since 1900. Studies have shown that using a smaller plate can result in taking up to 30% less food than you would with an oversized plate. The bigger the plate, the more you take, and the more you eat. Having a smaller plate won't help if you have three servings of everything, so tip number 14 is Plate your food, meaning instead of putting platters and bowls on the table, make a plate directly from the pot or pan you cooked it in. If you finish everything on your plate and you want more, by all means, stand up and go get some more. But chances are you're going to end up eating a lot less than if the platter is right in front of you and you keep picking at it. This was one of the primary changes that I made in my life. And tip number 15, slow down, take smaller bites drink water between bites. It is shocking how fast people eat. I'm so guilty of this. It's not unusual for me to have finished everything on my plate, but my very chatty husband is only about one third done. And if you finish and you're still hungry, wait 10 minutes before you get up and go for seconds. Chances are you won't be nearly as hungry if you give the food a chance to get where it's going. Tip number 16, snap a picture. It's amazing how much less you'll eat just by being aware of what you eat. Keeping a food diary works, but it's cumbersome. Snapping a picture is easy. We take pictures of everything. So before you put anything, and I mean anything in your mouth, even if it's just one M&M, take a picture of it. You may still eat it, but this strategy has been shown to decrease the amount that you eat without making any other changes. And don't delete the food photos right away. At the end of the day, take a look at everything you've eaten. Everything. Tip number 17. You may want to rethink skipping breakfast. A year-long study showed that women who did not stack mid-morning lost on average 4% more body weight in comparison to the 10 a.m. snackers and the people that are most likely to snack are the ones that do not eat breakfast. So eat a decent breakfast. And if you're really hungry mid-morning, as opposed to eating because you're bored or need to take a break from what you're doing, make sure you're surrounded by apples and carrot sticks as opposed to chips and trail mix. The strategy is not for those doing intermittent fasting, another topic for another day. Tip number 18, the sugary drinks have got to go. Multiple studies have proven that sugary drinks increase the risk of obesity, as well as heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and gout. A typical 20-ounce soda contains 240 calories or more. These calories do not give a feeling of fullness, so you will not eat any less. Replacing sugary drinks with non-sugary drinks can result in an average weight loss of two to 2.5%. I usually go with sparkling water and then a splash of cranberry juice or some fresh fruit. And speaking of juice, instead of drinking a huge glass of OJ in the morning, eat an orange. The other thing that's interesting is the same holds true for artificial sweeteners. Unless you're a diabetic, there's really no advantage to using artificial sweeteners, even though they don't have the same number of calories. Every study has shown that people that use artificial sweeteners do not lose weight more than people that just use a little bit of sugar. Tip number 19, when I offer to bring food to a party, yeah, it's to help out the host, But it's also to make sure there's something I'm going to want to eat. That way, I can avoid getting stuck at a dinner with no choice other than lasagna and salad drenched in Thousand Island dressing. But tell your host what you're thinking of bringing in advance so they don't have a stroke when you walk in with your turkey, pumpkin, chili, and they've carefully planned a French bistro theme. On to moving a little more. The truth is, is that when it comes to weight loss, unless you're running marathons, in every study. Dietary changes and behavioral modification made a much larger difference than physical activity alone. But increasing your activity will not only burn some calories, but will also help reduce body fat and body weight, tone muscle, and prevent osteoporosis, chronic diseases, and decrease long-term problems, including cognition. It is not controversial that people that remained active generally live longer. I just finished watching the documentary, Live to 100, Secrets of the Blue Zones, about the seven specific communities in the world in which people live the longest. And in addition to eating a healthy diet, one commonality in every community was lifelong daily activity. If you like to go to the gym five times a week or happen to live in a mountain village that requires walking up a hill multiple times a day, you're all set. Skip ahead. But even if you do not live in the hills of Sardinia, you can still increase your daily activity without having to take up pickleball. So tip 20, when I'm working from home, writing or working on lectures, I'm always either walking or standing at my treadmill desk. I put the speed at one to two miles an hour. It's easier to write and walk than you think. And it adds up. At the end of four hours, I generally have walked at least five miles. Not to mention, I no longer have the neck and back pain that I used to get from hunching over a desk. And you don't have to have a treadmill desk, and you actually don't even have to walk. You can turn your regular desk into a standing desk by using a pile of books to support your laptop. And also, you know, use the stairs. Leave early when you go someplace you can walk instead of Uber. Which brings me to tip number 21, wear shoes you can actually walk in. I mean, I love shoes, but unless I'm sitting on a stage or a TV set, I no longer wear sky high heels. What's on my feet more than anything else determines if I walk or call an Uber. And you can always carry your sky high shoes to wear an arrival. And I know gym shoes are very fashionable right now, but if that's not your look, not my look, check out Passion Shoes, P-A-S-H-I-O-N. They have switchable heels. You can wear them as flats and then screw on a block heel or screw on a four-inch stiletto, also great for travel. And no, they did not sponsor this episode, but if they want to send me some money or shoes, I won't say no. Tip number 22, Spending time with a friend does not need to always involve food. I mean, it's so automatic. Let's meet for lunch. Let's meet for coffee. Let's meet for a drink. There are other ways to socialize besides having a meal or a drink together. Share your weekly manicure with a good friend. Golfing. Just go for a walk. Shoe shopping, my very expensive weakness, are all ways to catch up without eating in the process. And finally, my last tip, number 23. Number 23. Don't let friends sabotage your efforts. I mean, don't you love it when you decline cake, but then your friend cuts you a piece anyway, places it in front of you, and gives you permission to eat it? If you had a life-threatening allergy to shellfish, would you agree to have a hunk of lobster because it was your friend's birthday? Exactly. And you know, your scale's not your enemy. I can't tell you how often a woman would come in for her annual visit and then be shocked that she gained five pounds since her last annual visit. When I ask, do you ever weigh yourself? The most common answer is no. I can tell by the way my clothes fit if I've gained weight. Okay. Women that wear skin tight, I can barely breathe jeans will know if they've gained an ounce. But if like most of the world, you spend your day in yoga pants, you will definitely not know if you put on a pound every month, which adds up to 10 to 12 pounds by the end of the year. So get on your scale every week or two. It is infinitely easier to lose one pound than 10 pounds. So those are my tips. The truth is most of my patients know what they should do and can give the lecture on what they should and should not be eating. For a lot of women, it comes down to the pattern behavior that sabotages a healthy diet. Try out even just a few tips. A weight loss of even 5% can reduce risk factors for cardiovascular disease, such as elevated lipids, hypertension, and diabetes. It's interesting to me that if someone has a medical illness, such as diabetes or heart disease, it would never occur to them to come up with a do-it-yourself treatment plan. But when it comes to weight loss, everyone thinks they're a failure if they didn't do it on their own. Structure and accountability make a big difference. Almost every local hospital has a program. And whatever program you choose, make sure it's a plan you can sustain. That would not be the nothing but grapefruit diet. And there's no shame in using weight loss medications or undergoing bariatric surgery if you have a lot of weight to lose and have been unsuccessful with diet and lifestyle changes. Obesity is a medical condition with medical consequences and sometimes requires medication or even surgery. As far as the best medical person to help you with all this, frankly, other than getting rid of your hot flashes, Probably not your gynecologist. Find a clinician that's certified in obesity medicine. It might be an internist, family medicine doc, cardiologist, or endocrinologist. A registered dietitian is a great resource along with behavioral psychologists. What about commercial options? Well, I'm not a big fan of the ones that supply your food. Again, you want to do something you can sustain. But Weight Watchers actually does a great job. And I'm a huge fan of their turkey, pumpkin, chili, even if I'm not trying to lose weight. Noom's behavioral approach can be very effective, mainly because of the one-on-one coaching they offer. Again, structure and accountability. I also highly recommend Dr. Robert Kushner's book, Six Factors to Fit. I've worked with Dr. Kushner for years, and he's internationally recognized as an expert when it comes to weight loss, as opposed to all those self-proclaimed experts that want to sell books and supplements. Six Factors to Fit is a research-based, scientific, personalized plan that deals with behavioral patterns. You can go to the Six Factors website, the link is in the program notes, and take a quiz to find out which category you fall into. The convenient diner, the self-critic, the fast pacer, the exercise struggler, or the all or nothing doer. Dr. Kushner's approach has been a game changer for so many of my patients, whether they're dealing with lifelong obesity or just a few menopausal pounds. So, Check it out. To close the loop on my story, I had those 10 pounds I wanted to lose, but I wasn't able to until I got going on my hormone therapy, started sleeping better, and cut down on both food and alcohol. The behavioral tips and strategies that impacted how much I ate are what made a huge difference for me. And again, it's not that I was eating bad food. I was just mindlessly eating too much food, and I didn't follow a specific diet. I eat pretty much everything, but lean towards fish and vegetables, which fortunately I like. I'm never hungry and I never feel deprived. And yes, I occasionally have a cheeseburger and fries, but it's occasionally. There also needs to be some acceptance that your 60-year-old body is not gonna be the same as your 20-year-old body. While I'm not suggesting you accept an extra 20 or more pounds that will increase your risk of heart disease and diabetes, that extra five pounds that settles around your middle is what it is. And Spanx was invented for that reason. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my inside information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of.